Dan and Philip, if you don't mind just introducing yourselves for our listeners really quick. Hi, I'm Dan Handelman. I use he, him pronouns. I'm uh, a co-founding member of the group Portland Cop Watch, uh, which was started in 1992. And my name is Philip Chashka. I'm also a member of Portland Cop Watch. For, it's been about seven or eight years now. As our show, we've been focused on the activities of the pack for most of our shows over the last year, and we were just hoping to talk with Portland Cop Watch about some of the, a little bit about that, but also some of the other issues that have been unfolding in the world of policing in Portland in 2022. Um, and one thing that has jumped out to us, um, at, in previous years we've tracked police shootings um, across the state and in Portland, and this year saw at least nine according to police data within uh, Portland and that's more than any year since they started keeping those or releasing those records in 2010. Before getting into details or anything, what what do you see as the significance of that uh, increase, especially in the context of um, more uh, shootings overall in the city? Uh so you mean shootings for civilian-on-civilian civilian shootings. Well, uh, one of the things we've been uh, putting out a lot lately is that there have been now 100 murders, homicides in Portland this year, and uh, four of them were by Portland police. So that means that uh, you know 4% of the homicides are by our the law enforcement that's supposed to be keeping the community safe, allegedly. Uh, we also had the introduction of the new intervention team, which uh, I guess Philip will talk a little bit more about, too, but the focus intervention team was there, created to replace the old gang enforcement team, which was very uh, racially biased. And they also were uh, specifically invented to say, to put down um, gun violence and to keep the community safe. And they've been involved in three shootings already. And just, they got created in January and they've been involved in shoot three shootings and one of those was fatal. So I don't know how you're keeping the community safe by riddling it with bullets. That is very curious. I think the police will say, well, you know, there's a team that goes going after people with guns, and of course there's going to be more shootings. So it doesn't mean that they, they have to respond by firing their weapons, you know. And so, yes, you made a good point. There's nine, at least nine shootings by Portland police officers this year, and there's not been this many shootings in the city of Portland since 2001 by the Portland police. Um, they were down to an average of about four or five shootings a year, and then last year there were eight, and then this year it's been nine. So um, I don't know if this is part of the backlash against the Black Lives Matter movement or if the officers are just, um, you know, one of the things that bothers me as a peace activist is that I used to be a big fan of the Indiana Jones movies, and the very first movie, um, there's a scene where the guy comes out with a big saber and starts swinging it around, and Indiana Jones is just like, well, I'm just going to shoot this guy and pulls his gun and shoot him. I think that, that maybe the Portland police are just getting tired of trying to de-escalate and uh, do all the things the DOJ told them they had to do and they're just pulling out their guns and shooting people. Now, this is part of a larger trend in the state of Oregon, though, that in Oregon we have never seen more than 37 shootings in a year um, in, since 2010 when we started tracking that, and there have been 40, at least 40 this year, deadly force incidents in the state of Oregon. So this, this is a big year for the state as well. This increase in shootings and increase in shootings statewide, um, it's coinciding with a I think a significant reduction in transparency around these shootings. Um, 
you know, previously it had been Bureau stated policy to release the names of involved officers within 48 hours. We went through a long period where there was no meaningful timeline for release. The police were just saying no because of potential doxing, which I think they got out of legislation that happened last year that was part of a package that was intended to increase police transparency and reduce police's, police abuses. Um, and now we have Chief Lavelle coming out and just saying that we're going to hear about things within within 15 days. Um, there's also a victim who was killed by police this year who has still not been officially identified by the police. Have you s- seen, do you see this as a larger trend in reduction in transparency by the police or do you feel like this is um, contained within this one sort of specific area of officer-involved shootings? Uh, well, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there's a, a whistleblower officer named Liani Reyna. She was a sergeant who retired, and she was trying to get the court to force the police to release um, some documents to her. And the upshot of that was that the um, the court said, if you don't want people getting access to this kind of information, you shouldn't put it out there in your public reports. So the police review board reports, which previously had included on them the case numbers um, that uh, you could identify uh, whether it was a bureau case or a community complaint or, um, you know, approximately what year it was filed, um, are now redacted. So, yes, there's a larger trend of information being cut out. So the police review board doesn't just look at shootings. It looks at, in fact, with the shootings, those are easy to... uh, pinpoint because they there's relatively few of them and they they have to review those but the other cases we don't really know even what year the incident happened unless they happen to mention that in the uh, the report so that that's been uh that kind of information has been cut back as well as what you're saying that it wasn't just a stated policy that they had to release the officer's name in 24 hours it was written policy that was approved by the u.s doj and when they changed that policy to be 15 days instead of 24 hours uh Bureau's news release claims that they okayed this with the DOJ, but, uh, you know, usually when there's a process like that around the policies, which are known as directives, there's public input. And there was no public input on this. And I'm sure you can imagine that Portland Cop Watch would not have approved of delaying the officer's release, the name of the officer's names being released from 24 hours to 15 days. That's just uh, an outrageous spin. Like if somebody in the community is accused of a murder, it's not like they're going to sit on top of that and say, oh, we don't want that person being doxxed because somebody's going to say, oh, you're a horrible person. Uh, we, don't want, we don't want you in our neighborhood. They just put that name. They know who it was, right? So um, why the police get special treatment? I don't know. I think, I think there's, a, there's a real um, argument to be made that there's a significant impact, uh, like a chilling impact of the delayed release as well. I'm thinking... We've seen a couple of cases this year that were, I mean, I think there's 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 reason to question all police shootings, but there were a couple that were especially trouble troubling. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of the February 19th case of um, uh, Joel Michael Arevalo, who 
it seems like there were some really significant conflicting reports about that. And there's some real reason to think that the police may have, have shot and killed somebody who was just waiting for a friend that did coincide with um, the shooting at Normandale park, which uh, the people's police report emphasized in their reporting on it. Um, But I just like, I haven't seen much reaction coming from the community this year around in a year where we're seeing more shootings than we have in the last 10 years or 12 years. I haven't seen much reaction from the community. And I'm wondering if part of that might be that they're just not getting that much meaningful information about them. I think, I think when you, this is Philip, I think when you delay responses from the police, uh, transparency and delay that reporting of what happened, uh, the news media just doesn't pick up on it months later when that, that information comes out because it's kind of an old news at that point and so the public really doesn't get the doesn't get informed of current events because it's been delayed and then the news isn't as interested in reporting on it uh, and specifically with the aravalo case my understanding is that the grand jury happened in july and it's now december and i don't think they've released those transcripts yet even though it's a policy of the da to release all the transcripts so you know, kind of feels like they're trying to hide something, but you know, who knows? There's there's a lot of things going on with um, still recovering from the pandemic and uh, other things that are happening in city government and in the DA's office. But it's still very unusual that that delay has happened. Just contextually, I just uh, I just wanted to add that it seems like the Portland police are functioning almost entirely without meaningful oversight at this point. Um, with the independent police review and the citizen review committee being, um, you know, pretty inactive with changes to transparency that we've discussed already. Um, I, it seems to me like there's a, there's a tremendous amount falling through the cracks. And I know that the police accountability commission is doing some work to first with strategy about how to fill some of those cracks. Um, and I'm looking forward to, to talking to Philip about, to hearing from Philip about what some of that work is. Uh, I think as far as the cracks that might be happening out right now, the Police Accountability Commission isn't really looking into that so much. And just for the simple fact that they have a lot of, a big workload, they have a lot on their plate right now to, to try to get um, a, a new system designed within the 18 month time frame they've been given. So they don't have uh, necessarily a whole lot of interest in looking into what the current system is, how the current system might be slowing down or not being able to accomplish the tasks that they're created. They're they're trying to focus their energy onto onto a future program rather than what is now. Yeah, I guess I would just say as a follow up that what is happening now would m- meaningfully. Perf- inform uh what might be built in the future sure i think one of the benefits of the the ballot measure that was passed is that the a new system will have funding as a percentage of the police budget and they'll also be in charge of their own staff and that sort of thing so it won't right now the community safety division is is in charge of staffing for a lot of these uh oversight boards and lo and behold, it's also they report to the uh, chief of police, who is the police commissioner. So 
if the staff that's helping these boards function is is not feeling uh, appreciated by the mayor, then or or if they're getting pressured by the mayor's office to do it a certain way, then those those boards just uh, can have a hard time functioning as the way they're designed. For instance, the you know the uh, PCCP has been having a hard time filling seats, and other groups have been hard time uh, even meeting uh, to get quorum. Uh, so there is a there's a problem with how those groups are supported by by the the city, which is supposed to support them, but it's kind of uh, you know uh, myself uh, I I think they're kind of being undermined at the same time by the city. So the benefit of the new oversight group is that the, they'll be separated from the uh, police commissioner and the mayor's office, and they'll have their own budget for, for staffing, and they can uh, work on their own staffing issues rather than relying on a, a city official to take that on for them. I want to make a point of clarification that the community safety division is in the Office of Management and Finance, which is a weird place for it, but um, that is underneath the mayor's portfolio. So um, uh, what Philip made a brief reference to is that the Citizen Review Committee is running low on staff, and they've asked for the Community Safety Division to help, um, or the IPR, Independent Police Review, which oversees the CRC, has asked the Community Safety Division to provide them with somebody to staff the Citizen Review Committee, which, again, why would you have somebody from the Police Commissioner's Office run the Police Review Board? It doesn't make any sense. So when the... PAC started its work <clears throat> that put a kind of a sunset on IPR and the CRC as the, you know, citizen intake part of the police oversight system in Portland. As uh, Copwatch wrote in police, People's Police Report number 85, quote, while IPR is not going to be around for much more than two to three more years, it is the only agency which stands between the community and a world where police do all their investigations unsupervised by civilian eyes, unquote. And in your estimation, given some of the issues that you've raised and, you know, the kind of getting disowned by the auditor's office, that, do you think that IPR and the Citizen Review Committee still seem to be able to fill that role? Um, well, uh, yeah, I believe that they're still doing the work they're supposed to do, but I think there's... A couple of things going on that the people who are inside um, IPR were like, well, I don't know how much longer I'm going to have a job. This is not a good trajectory for me as a career, so I'm out of here. And so they lost several staff people. That was um, taken care of by apparently offering bonus uh, retention money to the staff that's still there. And then on the flip side, you got people in the community going, all righty, well, we voted for this new board, so why am I going to file a complaint with these people? Because um, you know, they're on the way out. So I think there's been uh, less utilization of both IPR and the CRC. There hasn't been an appeal to the Citizen Review Committee since June of 2021. Um, there was one that scheduled earlier this year that got withdrawn. Um, and so that's very troubling that they used to have eight appeals a year and there were zero in this year. So, uh, but I do believe that if, if there were people in the community willing to um, utilize those agencies that they're still doing the work they're supposed to be doing. It's just that the reason people put the ballot measure in the, forward in the first place is that the job they're able to do 
isn't what people would really like out of a system anyway. And and just sort of continuing the tour of oversight agencies here. There, um, Philip, you mentioned the Portland Committee on Community Engaged Policing or PSEP. They they've experienced a lot of turnover issues, some kind of mission drift, um, if not existential angst. Uh, I, I'm just curious what you see as the future of the PCCEP. I know that they're have some have kind of a different mandate through the DOJ settlement and um, uh, but w what kind of role do you think that they could play in the future reorganized system, if any? Personally, I don't know that uh, it'd make more sense to have something like that under the direction of a new board, a new oversight board, um, like a subcommittee or something like that, that interacts more with the public uh, rather than to have right now, it's just kind of floating on without a home almost. <laughs> The PCCEP was created in part to make sure that the DOJ agreement is being complied with. And the mayor's office recently rewrote their bylaws, uh, well, a draft that hasn't been uh, 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 approved yet. They rewrote the draft bylaws to, and pulled out the part about making sure the settlement agreement is being implemented properly. So, uh, the city, I think, is trying to take away that one of the most important things that that body was created for. Uh, I guess I won't speak to uh, Philip's idea because that uh, treads onto the area I'm not, I shouldn't talk about. But regardless, the PCCP's mission is includes um, uh, trying to uh, foster a better relationship between the community and the police. Uh, whereas the oversight system, the existing oversight system, is there, for the most part, to take complaints about the police and try to, um, you know, remediate those uh, complaints. And but both bodies are supposed to be making recommendations about how police can be doing things better. Uh, and we we're not getting, we haven't gotten any of those from either source for a long time. The CRC put out something about crowd control last September, uh, and the um, the PCCP actually supported those those crowd control recommendations and the mayor never responded to them, even though he's required to under the PCC plan. So, and the, the, you know, the judge uh, noted that the people on PCCP were uh, complaining about the fact that the staff was running everything for them for the last several months, that they didn't have enough people. Uh, and one of them, one of the major issues uh, earlier this year uh, until about two months ago, when the city finally started repopulating this PCCP, that they didn't have enough members to vote on whether or not they wanted their bylaws. They had uh, they have 13 seats and they had seven members, and all seven weren't showing up to meetings, which means they didn't have a quorum of the existing members. And we at Copwatch we've been asking for a long time for that quorum to be changed to be a majority of seated members, so that when you only have seven people there, you need four to have a meeting. You know, um, and uh, the city for some reason keeps dragging their heels about that. Uh, Commissioner Hardesty even turned to her colleagues one time when we testified a couple of months ago and said, why don't we just do this right now? I'm sick and tired of hearing about this. Let's just do this now. And the mayor said, oh, I want to ask the PCCP what they think about that first. And I've been to all their meetings. I've never heard that come up again, not from the mayor's office anyway. Continuing the, the round robin of organizations here, the um, 
I think one of the few shows we did that was not focused strictly on the PAC was about uh, Shot Spotter and how it's rolled out across the country and some of the issues that have come up. And a proposal was made here in Portland that was taken up kind of enthusiastically by the council. Uh, but it was made by the FITCOG, the uh, Focused Intervention Team Community Oversight Group, um, which we had originally approached as kind of an exciting new window onto things. And then we had a bunch of issues viewing their meetings. Um, but one of the meetings we were able to watch was um, where they were working on this proposal for ShotSpotter. And um, we were a little surprised, I think, by some of the deference that was being shown to the police point of view and the desire of police officers themselves to have this uh, very controversial technology. I don't even really have a question. I'm just curious what your take is on the FITCOG as a new or newer um, body and what you've seen in those meetings. Uh, I've been to a few of the FITCOG meetings. Um, I get really frustrated in those. <laughs> it, it might be a personal issue because I I grew up in a controlling religious environment. And so those meetings really trigger a lot of that for me because of the way people talk and interact with each other is very, uh, it's almost like demonizing. If you don't agree with them, like you're the devil and you want people to get shot and killed. And and that I know that's really strong for me to say, but like, that's, that's the feeling I get. Like if you disagree with shot spotter, then then like you want black people to shoot each other or something like that, uh, which is really not true. Um, <laughs> I don't want anybody to shoot each other. Um, so, uh, and I've studied shot spotter a bit. Um, the main concern, well, there's quite a few concerns, um, but one of them is uh, like Sergeant Julio himself. He's one of the one of the people in charge of the FIT. Um, he in 2020 2001 i believe he he got called to a robbery suspected robbery and he showed up and he shot the black man who had disarmed the accused robber <laughs> so he showed up expecting there might be a gunfight and he shot the wrong person and he's in charge of the fit now and he's advocating for a program that officers show up expecting a gunfight and they might show up just like he did and start shooting people who aren't armed or dis or maybe disarm somebody else or just like some innocent bystander. And I think we're going to end up with a lot of tense situations where officers show up to, you know, backfire or somebody banging a hammer and expect to shoot somebody that day. And maybe they will, and maybe they'll miss, or maybe they'll hit somebody and innocent people will get hurt. Um, and instead de-escalating, they're expecting to come in as a Rambo or some kind of hero person that, that saves the day, quote unquote. Um, so that's my, my main concern. I don't think officers are, have shown, in Portland have shown the ability to de-escalate uh, when, when there's reports of gunfire. Yeah, um, I think 
I was at, or I, I watched the session of the FitCog where Smart Cities um, rep- representatives from Smart Cities came to discuss the report that they put together, which included um, some concerns about the technology itself, but also some information about other places where ShotSpotter had already been implemented and extensive studies had been done, like Chicago, for example, um, that pointed out the potential um, for... A, exactly what you're talking about philip and i also was really struck by um how defensive uh the civilian members of the fit cog were um they really seemed to think that uh the representatives from smart cities were um almost like reactionaries or something like that that they were that their that their goal was to just stop the police from having anything they wanted and that's that's not really the case with that bureau at all um or with that program that's not that's not part of of their makeup is to really consider the police one way or the other um and so i think it's it's interesting to me that the fit cog has had these problems with um with police influence on in the organi- in the organization in the board and um, the inability to kind of with any sort of you know genuinely reflect um, a diversity of community perspectives on this, especially since when the mayor came to talk to the police accountability commission, he pointed to the fit cog as a great shining example of community input and community oversight done right. Um, so I think, I think the, the thing that's just as, as, you know, Sam and I have been paying significant attention to community oversight in the city of Portland since about 2017 community oversight of the police bureau. And I, I think this is just, this is just sort of like an existential frustration, I guess, but it's really surprising to me that since 2020, when there was this big round of social justice, racial justice protests, and we saw tremendous brutality from the Portland police bureau, the response from the city and the response from the leadership within the city with very few exceptions. And even the response from the community has been to kind of just disengage um, and not really continue the hard work that was already being done. And I, I think possibly all due respect, an unintended consequence of the police accountability commission coming onto the scene has been that, the city itself has just been like, well, there's something new coming. So I guess for the next five years, we just don't have to pay attention. Well, I was going to say this, to me, this is a broader uh, issue. The thing about the FIT COG recommending shot spotter and the lack of community interest and stuff is part of a, uh, the pendulum swing, you know, back against uh, black lives mattering and that, you know, police have to be held accountable that, um, I've been describing the shot spotter and the mayor's plans to push homeless people into uh, mass encampments as, you know, he's just kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. And even if it doesn't stick, he's going to keep throwing more spaghetti there. Uh, and, you know, the, the fact that the uh, community oversight group wouldn't listen to the report from another city agency, really, that said this is not good technology, uh, that I, I think, Philip, you know, back me up if I'm uh, or 
or not. Uh, but I think that they said something to the community when they demanded to have a say at the table at an oversight group meeting. We're the community members that were picked on this. We don't have to listen to the rest of you, right? And we are the community. And that's just that's not the right attitude. So there's a lot of that kind of, you know, insular stuff and, and the backlash and the, and the kind of wildly throwing things about to see what, what can, you can make it work. Um, and I know something I, I think Philip's going to want to talk about, too, is now they're talking about putting cops back in the schools again because there have been a couple of shootings outside of schools, right? Yeah, um, I have a, a, a child that's in high school, and they're having a meeting at their school next month um, with Chief Lavelle and some other cops to, as they're proposing to get cops back in. They're trying to put pressure on the district and the city to let cops back into schools. Um, that's something that Pitcog is pushing um, as part of their part of their plan, I believe. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, uphill battle, I think, uh, for that. Hopefully, we can remind people of uh, why we took police out of schools in the first place, and they don't they aren't reactionary because police in schools don't actually stop shootings. <laughs> The statistics don't show that the police and schools stop, stop shootings. They'll just hurt hurt kids and create a prison school to prison pipeline. Right, and I think I, part of the part of the backlash has been not only local but national media coverage about how you know the protests in Portland that uh, ended up damaging property and whatnot, and the violence, which mostly was police violence, um, uh, was uh, uh, led to the police quitting and, uh, you know, the rapid response team quit and, you know, that because one of their officers got indicted. And so there, it's kind of like that part of that pendulum was when I was talking about where the narrative is, oh, yeah, it's the police that were keeping us safe before. But that was never true. And, you know, everybody was locked down in 2020 and saw George Floyd murdered in front of their eyes and said, wow, you know, those crazy people at Cop Watch have been saying this stuff all these years. And I, they were right. And now they've got their, you know, basketball games and everything else is going on again. They're walking out and about. And, oh, well, time to go on with my life. Uh, and it's too bad because they were awake for a little while. But I think that they watch the media and they listen to the politicians and they think that none of that stuff is important anymore, even though it was really important. I mean, just tens of thousands of people were marching in the streets uh, on a daily basis. And now, um, you know, uh, you, you've seen how many people show up at the – PAC meetings. I'm not saying anything about the content, but very few people are in the audience watching those. And it's a real shame because they're very exciting. So I'm just <laughs> going to throw in a pitch for everybody to go watch. Seconded. Um, and I, I wanted to. So another, I think, sign of that backlash, um, um, among other things, is the. Uh, uh, changes on the city council, which is just one thing. Um, uh, Hardesty got voted out and Renee Gonzalez got voted in to replace her. And that um, e even just by the loss of Hardesty's voice on council, which has often been, you know, questioning of the police line and the mayor's support of them, um, even just by the loss of that voice and gaining another vote in favor of police that is a significant change in what we can hear from city council um but looking ahead to 2023 um we have the 
potential vote on ShotSpotter. We have a vote on the PAC's proposal, the PAC's proposal. Uh, we have the continuing finagling about the funding for this homeless camp idea and camping ban. Uh, what do you think that people concerned with police accountability should really pay attention to in 2023? Uh, since I've been watching the PAC, I've been concerned about how this will get through city council. Um, I know it's a voter mandated thing, and I'm really hoping that the public will pay attention once it's handed uh, once the recommendation is handed to city council and the city and the DOJ that there'll be a lot of public pressure to make it a good system and not to water it down. Um, I think if if we can get a good system coming out of the PAC and a new board, uh, I think we, it'll set us up for a long time in the future. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, when you're driving a car, you know, it's like, well, is it more important to pay attention to pedestrians that might step in front of you or other cars that are driving around you or the traffic signs or the traffic? It's like it's all important if you want to be safe and stay alive. So it's hard to pick out one thing. I think that um, all of it's important, but people have different areas of interest. And I think that, you know, um, the people who are interested in oversight should pay attention to the oversight system. I think the people who are interested in the um, – uh, shot spotter issue and the shootings that are going on in the community should come forward. I think it's really important for people from communities of color to come to speak about shot spotter. Uh, a lot of the people who are working on that issue, uh, the anti shot spotter, are people from communities of color who understand that it's not going to do anything to keep people more safe. And I, I keep asking, what would they expect that cops are going to be Superman? So just because they get a report sooner that all of a sudden they'll be able to fly there before the people run away from the scene, it's just ridiculous. The, on that just basic level, not to mention all the false reports that um, Philip was mentioning, uh, and uh, it's going to cost a lot of money. We have money, you know, we have, we have, you know, we should be spending money on housing and taking care of people instead of and uh, instead of um, throwing more money at police and police-related things. So I think the budget's important too. So it's all, you know, to me, it's all, it's all part of life rich budget. It's all, it's all something that we all have to work on. But you know, I don't think anybody has to. Uh, try to do what we're doing. We should try to pay attention to all of it, and people should just pick the things that are you know meaningful to them and get involved. And so don't don't let the fact that there's so much stuff overwhelm you. Just pick a thing that you think are, is important around police issues, please, <laughs> and um, and uh, write to the city council or go to the meetings or uh, go to uh, community meetings and uh, make your voice heard. Uh, in terms of what you just referenced of uh, Portland Cop Watch, <clears throat> paying attention to everything, uh, we, you know, the premise of this interview was that you had three really robust, meaty uh, people's police reports that came out this year. We've talked about some of that stuff already. Is there anything that you think is really um, important to discuss that we haven't touched on yet? We haven't talked about the lawsuits and how much money the Portland police are costing uh, taxpayers and you know yeah it comes out of a special fund but that fund is generated out of city funds so uh, again it can be used to help people instead of paying out to victims of police violence so there are a lot of cases around protest actions and some of them went back as far as 2017 during the proto-fascist and anti-fascist protests uh, or have been being paid out and we've it's 
close to a million dollars. Well, it's actually over a million dollars now because of the $250,000 settlement that just came out for the Don't Shoot Portland shoot. And, and just as a matter of fact, Don't Shoot Portland only took one dollar out of that. The other 250000 went to split up among five uh, individuals who were harmed by police during protests in 2020. Uh, and... A lot of these cases aren't able to move forward because the cops, as you may remember, weren't wearing identification tags on the outside of the uniforms after just about the first month and a half. And so a lot of times they can't even identify it was a police important police officer or, or which one it was. I think a lot of times people are traumatized and they don't want to go through the, you know, either the complaint process or the, the process of filing a lawsuit. But there's a lot more in the pipeline. And we're, you know, we're, we're at a million dollars now. Um, and then uh, there's more coming. Uh, there were also... Um, uh, you know, several, uh, I, I believe several of the families uh, of people who were shot by the police uh, are either already have sued or announced an intent to sue. And when you look at, we just recently updated our top 25 settlements list on our website. And, you know, among the top 25 are quite a few incidents where important police shot at somebody, including the one that Philip referenced before with Sergeant Delio when he shot at Bruce Brown. Um, that cost the city $200,000 because um, he shot at the wrong person. So, um, we have to stop this police violence, uh, and, and it's you know it's not only costing us uh, fellow community members and their health and well-being, but it's also costing money out of you know your pocket, my pocket, uh, everybody's pocket that really should be used for something. And even more than the money issue, my concern is like these lawsuits point to misconduct. You know, like people are getting injured and there's misconduct happening, but how is the police? How is the police changing in response to misconduct? And are, are, do they just be like, here's your money, bye, we're going to do this next week too, and maybe the person who gets injured won't report it, <laughs> and then we'll be fine. You know, Are the supervisors being held accountable for what officers do under their watch? Like, Are they just kind of standing by and watching it happening and nothing happens to them even though they're the supervisor? I think there's it just points to a whole whole bunch of problems within the police that that isn't being addressed. So uh, a lot of times we t find out about these settlements because uh, anything over $5,000 has to go to city council. So I've got two things to tell you about that. One is that a case just went before. The, so city council decided it would only put it on the regular agenda if it was $50,000 or more. So a case for $47,500 went before the police uh, a couple of weeks ago. And um, because we happen to be able to get in touch with a person's attorney, we found out that the officer in that case actually got disciplined, which is very rare because those payouts has nothing to do with whether the officer is being held accountable or not. That officer was uh, was found out of policy for the violence in that case. Um, the other thing is that that five thousand dollars threshold to put it just on the city council agenda at all uh, was raised to fifty thousand um, dollars in the charter amendment that passed. Now I didn't see that in my voters pamphlet, and I don't I didn't hear anybody talk, talking about it, but now. Um, it says that the mayor may settle cases up to $50,000 um, without going to city council. I think that one of the things I want to see people do between now and 2025 when that charter kicks into place is to make sure that the policy is that if it has to do with police violence, if it's $5,000 or more, it goes on the city council agenda. And it goes on the regular agenda and not on the consent agenda. Because So we keep pulling them off the consent agenda and forcing the city council to talk about it so there's a public discussion, and hopefully there's public discussion about the underlying policies that keep leading to these payouts, and they just refuse to say anything because the city attorneys made them afraid that it's going to jeopardize the case. 
well, then we're just going to keep coming back here because you're going to not fix the problem. But I did want to touch briefly, at least on the Portland Police Association. Um, they've turned a few pages recently uh, in the past year. We have a new contract. Um, the former president, uh, Brian Hunsaker, has been fired uh, after being having to step down um, as the president for releasing the retaliatorily leaking the report about Hardesty. Um, and they have a new president, Brian Schmaltz, uh, and looks like a new offices even uh, down in Milwaukee. Just curious what, what you see as uh, potential sticking points with the PPA. I mean, I think they've been kind of an actor in the background of some of the things we've been talking about, like the not releasing officers' names, even going back to 2020, the have covered name badges. They're always there. And I'm just curious where you think they may pop up in the coming year. Oh, my. Uh, well, the, it was revealed in Judge Simon's courtroom in November that the city and the PPA had had 13 meetings to talk about body camera policy. And the one sticking point that we know of, I mean, there's I, I, well, I think there's two that we know of, but the main one is whether or not they can look at the footage after they've been involved in the shooting uh, before they write their report, which completely contradicts the Supreme Court finding about when police can use force that says you have, can't use 2020 hindsight. You have to know what the officer was thinking at the time. So if then they look at, a, at video footage, it's going to change their perception of what happened. So I don't even know why there's a debate about this. Uh, un unfortunately, there's a lot of jurisdictions in the country, including the U.S. DOJ's investigative arms that allow officers to look at body camera footage first. But the DOJ civil um, section, which is in charge of the settlement agreement here, has kind of thrown down the gauntlet on this and said, if we get a policy that says they're going to look at that footage first, we're going to reject it and we're going to take it all the way to the court. Um, so, I, but again, I don't know what is taking so long with that negotiation. Um, the, D, the PPA is also in negotiations about whether or not the Portland Street response, which is another uh, 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 program that Commissioner Hardesty put together to try to have address people in a mental health crisis that don't need police officers coming and shooting them or harming them. Instead, they have you know a firefighter and a, a trained person, a person who's trained in mental health issues, come out and deal with their uh, incident. Um, that uh, they get to decide, the PPA gets to decide whether or not the PSR folks get to go into homes, get to address people who have stepped into the street. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are several uh, cases, kinds of cases that the PSR is not allowed to deal with because the PPA, which has been complaining for years, we have too much work to do with all these people with mental health crisis, uh, says, don't take our work away from us. <laughs> you know, uh, and so it's just they, they, they uh, are contradicting themselves and they, they are very... Um, it can be very harmful to the community, and I, I wish there was something we could do to have more community involvement in the uh, negotiating of those contracts. You know, the contract that, that is signed in February, uh, it started out with Commissioner Hardesty inviting public input on what the city should do, and started out having public meetings, alternating back and forth between public meetings and non-public meetings for the first six months, and then disappeared behind closed doors. And it was, you know, it was finalized um, without any community input and barely a whimper at city council when it was voted on. I think the lack of community input is a 
is a running theme and it's not it's not quite as simple i think as inviting people i think it's also making them feel welcome um and part of feeling welcome might be feeling like the time that you spend engaging with these processes actually has value um because there it, it results in um in things changing or things happening uh, in a way that is consistent with community expectations. Um, I want to make sure to mention one thing, which is another thing that we looked at this year that was not directly connected to the Police Accountability Commission, which is um, body camera policies. You're saying, I don't know how um, the police review of f the right to review gets into all of these policies. One thing that we noticed was that um, in developing these policies, they often, you know, police leadership will often just dis dis discuss the idea of like best practices and what's done in other jurisdictions. Um, we looked at the other jurisdictions that around us and we found that, um, a company called Lexapol owns the copyright on the body camera policies for almost all of those agencies and that the language around right to review by police officers is verbatim um, from Lexapol. Uh, so I think that's the answer to how that gets into to uh, everybody's policies. I know that the uh, Department of Justice settlement agreement, I mean, that has been uh, kind of clicking along in the background of everything that's been going on over the past decade. Um, and there were some, uh, Judge Simon had, well, in the DOJ, I'm sorry, had found a number of new violations of the settlement agreement this year. Um, and it's just this continuing roller coaster ride of being in compliance and out of compliance since before 2020. And uh, I don't know, I, I wonder what value you see in the settlement agreement still. What, what does it look like the Portland Police Bureau has any inclination to? get into full compliance with it, the rank and file following along. Um, right. Well, I, I think that all along the city's uh, intention has been to check the check boxes and say, look, we did what you said, let's get out of it. And in some cases, uh, you know, twisting the words and saying, oh, well, it doesn't specifically say we have to do that, so we're not doing it. Um, and this is what we're up against. So I know this is very encouraging for what uh, what Jasmine was just saying about trying to make sure people feel welcome that what they're going to do is going to make a difference. But imagine if nobody was pushing back against them at all, how bad things would be here. I mean, we have a bad police bureau. We have bad city oversight of our police bureau. But imagine how bad it would be if there was nobody pushing back and keeping an eye on this. And uh, right now, the DOJ agreement is one of those thin lines we have. Uh, and Judge Simon, even though he's doesn't, you know, I don't agree with all of his positions on things. He's one of the only people who's been involved in that since the beginning. There's huge turnover in city council and leadership of the police bureau. And uh, even in some of the, uh, like you were saying, the leadership of the police association has changed over twice now, just in the last two years. Uh, so, uh, but Judge Stein has been there consistently. He's been listening to the community and he got, he really uh, tore into the city for dragging their heels on a number of things. And one of those things was, the racist slot training slot that we you know were discovered in January of this year. Uh, 
Actually, the city learned about them in September of last year, and even before that, but they didn't do anything until September, and they started an investigation. The investigation into that is allegedly done, but there's no outcome. The city wouldn't tell the judge what it was in November, uh, and we, you know, the public still has no idea what's happened with that. Uh, they don't know who put those racist slides, racist and anti-protester slides in there, and they, you know, we don't know what they're going to do to them. And we don't know if they trained on them at all. But um, it's the... DOJ timeline says you have to finish your investigation in 180 days, and it's been over a year, and the slides were manufactured in 2018, which is four years ago now. So I, I understand uh, people's impatience and frustration, and that it doesn't always seem like you're doing something, but uh, as um, you've heard many times about much of this struggle is that it's a marathon and it's not a sprint, and that you know it takes a long time to take a giant uh, organization like the thousand-member Portland Police Bureau and turn it around. And it's you know, it's not going to happen overnight. And certainly, I can tell that you know, cop watches around for thirty years. <laughs> it's certainly not going to happen overnight. But little pieces get getting you know chipped away here and there. If it, it, we saw you know, we saw hope that there would be a, a huge change in 2020 when they started dismantling the gang enforcement team and the school resource officers. Because I think because the community pressure backed off on that, and because they believe this, the the hype that the shootings are happening both in schools and in the streets because of this you know dismantling of the police, which really you cannot prove causality. You can't say that because there's fewer police that that's why people are shooting each other. There's, there are circumstances out there in the streets that are um, that are pushing people to do these things, uh, and it's not uh, it has nothing to do with lack of police officers or the or the Black Lives Matter movement. It's um, it's disingenuous, and they know it's disingenuous, but it, it serves their purposes to keep saying that. So, you know, the lessons that we all learned about the history of police, the history of racism in this country uh, are still true, and I encourage people to not forget that and to uh, keep pushing forward for a better world. What purposes specifically do you think it serves for them to continue to do things that they know are ineffective? Well, I don't think it's that they, they, they're doing things that they know are ineffective. I think that what they're doing is they're pointing to um, uh, how we need to have more police officers in order to stop all this crime to enrich themselves to have more members of the PPA, for instance, you know, to get more jobs for themselves uh, it's, and to, you know, to fulfill their vision of how society works, which is that you, you know, enforce state power through violence instead of um, saying, wow, you know, this PSR thing is great. It's taking a lot of stuff off our hands. We, we really support this. You know, I really encourage them to, you know, even hire more and have them take more of these cases off our hands. Uh, and, you know, if that uh, eventually the police bureau whittles down to only having 500 members instead of 1,000 members, well, that'll be okay because we'll find other ways to deal with these things. But no, that's not that. They, they have an interest in perpetuating themselves as an institution. Uh, I'd like to say that the DOJ settlement. Uh, while it does help provide transparency and allows us to get a little insight and oversight, um, it, it looks like statistically things haven't gotten better for people with mental health. They're still getting uses of force against them. And like, I'd love to say like, yes, it's working, but it's not, <laughs> you know, like some things maybe have gotten better, but at the end of the day, people are still getting hurt. Um, because they have mental, they're in mental health crisis, and the the thing it sought to prevent, it's not preventing uh, on a, a scale that we'd like to see. We, we'd like things to get better.
Um, well, we really appreciate the two of you coming to uh, talk with us today um, or showing up on Zoom to talk with us today. Uh, we've been speaking with Dan Handelman and Philip Chachka of Portland Cop Watch. Thank you both again very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us.